Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, brought to you, as always, by the folks at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And today, we're joined by a triple sport athlete and a real agent for change. Chloe Dalton, well, she's crammed a lot into her 30 years, a WNBL player, a Rugby Sevens Olympic gold medalist, and an AFLW star. But Chloe's biggest legacy might yet be the platform she's built to recognise and celebrate the achievements of female athletes. The Female Athlete Project has become a phenomenon, yet Chloe has this year also found time to release a book, Girls Don't Play Sport Through Alan and Unwin. Oh, and did I mention as well, she's also a member of the Order of Australia. Chloe Dalton, welcome aboard. Great pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a chat. I must say, after almost uh, running out of breath reading through all that, I'm amazed that you found the time to actually fit us in, so thank you. No worries. It was weird um, hearing you say in my 30 years. I, yeah, I just turned 30 a couple of weeks ago. So it's weird to kind of hit that milestone and, and be in that phase of my life. Yeah, slippery slope from here. I could <laughs> All downhill. I'm speaking from experience. Hey, and we're speaking the morning after the Matildas beat Denmark 2-0 to get through to the round of eight to the quarterfinals. Amazing achievement. Did you get along? I got to the game and it was just something special. You know, when you have those moments when you're at a live sporting match and you kind of just take a moment looking around the crowd. And I was at the opening match when they played against Ireland, which was obviously incredible. But I think there was just something about the atmosphere last night. Like, you know, the level of hope that the country has in the Matildas, just like praying that they're going to keep going and progressing. And they were just awesome. Like I thought Caitlin Ford was so good. Um, and that ball that Mary Fowler put through to her and Hayley Razzo has been amazing. We saw Sam Kerr back on the pitch. Like it was just a really special night and very cool to be there to watch it live. Great to see the country really getting behind them and the momentum really building. And Hey, listen, coming back to you, we speak to a lot of athletes on this show, of course, but we, we don't speak to many, if any, I don't think, who are advocates at the same time, or as you put it, I think, change makers. Is that the phrase you use? Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, that one. I, um, I think as an athlete, a lot of the time, you're almost put in a box in a way, and, and you're a little bit a little bit fearful or apprehensive of, of kind of overstepping the line sometimes, of, of saying the wrong thing or being too controversial controversial because as an athlete you've obviously got your own brand but you're also representing your club or or a sporting body or your country whoever you're playing for but it's been this really cool space to kind of step into and I think the last couple of years where I've been at the GWS Giants the the club and the media team that I work with there have really just given me license that they trust my voice in that space and and just for me to feel comfortable to go out and and speak and and try and create change in the, in the gender equality space. So you haven't just played three different sports, obviously at a very high level, like I say, but you're also 
you know, which we'll explore a bit further, actively looking to address, I guess, the gender inequalities exist with sports media as much as anything. So I know the why, but can you talk a bit to perhaps where that passion actually comes from with you? Yeah, um, I think I think it's a combination of factors, um, probably starting with personal experience. Um, coming back, we won a gold medal in, in Rugby Sevens and, and flying back from Rio was, was incredible. We kind of came in into the Qantas hangar and friends and family and media and it was just this incredible hype. And then it kind of just stopped, you know? There were people who, after we won the gold medal, were like, the sponsorship opportunities are going to come flooding in and you're never going to work a day in your life, which is a ridiculous thing to say and that doesn't happen for anyone. But the the difference between kind of what some of the expectations were to the reality of it were really quite stark. And I think part of that was a pretty big reflection on the level of coverage that continued on post-Olympics. And as a female athlete, I think I'm I'm hyper aware of listening to the radio or watching TV or reading the newspaper, how often I actually get to hear stories of female athletes. And I think we've made really significant improvements in that space, but I think there's still a really long way to go. And a big part of the reason about why I'm so passionate about, it, I got to be an ambassador for our watch and they do a lot of work in the domestic violence space. And, and they actually, um, when I was going through my training to become an ambassador, they talked about the power of sport and because it, is such a huge part of our lives in Australian culture and it gets to kind of invade our lounge rooms as we sit and watch our favourite team on the telly or people take their kids down to the park. Sport has has this huge power to be able to change people's attitudes. And I think once I, once I went through that training course, I really started to understand, like, yes, as an athlete, I step out onto the ground and I work as hard as I possibly can and it's really cool to to bring people joy and bring my family and friends and members and supporters to bring them joy when we perform well. But I just feel like I can make so much more of an impact with my platform at the same time with the work that I'm doing and, and using sport as a vehicle to do that. You mentioned our watch, but tell us about the Female Athlete Project. And for people listening at the moment who might be hearing those words for the first time, what does it actually entail? Yeah, so the Female Athlete Project is a platform that's all about increasing the visibility of women in sports. We do that through a, a range of different things. We started originally as a podcast in the garage of my parents' home, um, and, and we still go back and, and record a lot of episodes there, which is really good fun. Um, when we started doing more podcast content on social media, we started to realise, again, there was this gap in, in this space of people being able to access kind of really up-to-date and really rapid information about when female athletes were achieving things. So we've seen huge growth on our social media channels, particularly on Instagram, because there is this real appetite and this real demand for the information around women's sport. And, and there's a lot of research around the fact that women's sports fans are fluid fans who've kind of learned to find their information in different ways, kind of away from mainstream media if they haven't had access traditionally. And then we also do lots of merchandise and get our, our weekly email out. We've got an amazing, team that works behind the scenes outside of all their other full-time jobs to put it out there so it's a it's a big project um and it takes up a lot of my time and energy and other people's time and energy but it's it's a really powerful thing and it, it, I, every time I, I wake up in the morning I, it, it fills me with a lot of purpose which is really cool i'm not sure how old it is or how it's aged but you quote a study on your website a recent study at the time of publication obviously and you report that women make up somewhere around 40% of participants in sports, but only receive 4% of the sports media coverage. So if that's still 
nigh on accurate. I mean, how can that change? This feels like a big wheel to turn though, doesn't it? Almost a, a sort of a daunting assignment. Yeah, it's a really massive one to address. And there's obviously so many different components that go into that. I think, I think a big part of it is just getting the stories in the mainstream media, I think is a really big one. I think having um, more opportunities for female journos, I think is a really big one to, to have the chance to tell those stories. But I think there's also a real role for, for male journos in that space as well. And, and the role that we know how many men love watching women's sport. There's a lot of data that comes out about that, right? If, if they might already be a fan of, of the men's team and then their club brings in a women's team, a lot of them just naturally transfer and, and want to support that team as well. So I think, I think it's kind of this shift in, in recognizing the demand is there for it. Like I think, so many people kind of get caught up in the old narrative of like, no one wants to watch women's sport. It doesn't bring in the numbers, but we've seen really clear examples globally. Um, even if we, if we talk women's football with FIFA happening at the moment, like the Barcelona women's football team selling out Camp Nou stadium in Spain on multiple occasions, 90,000 plus and, and their team and, and their manager talked about like just really simple things around like marketing the game tell the athletes stories, like make the tickets affordable, you know, like there's just some really simple things that we can, that sporting bodies can put in place to like keep driving attendance and things like that, which then I think brings more demand for people to read the stories and to watch and listen to the stories too. And and as I mentioned, you become an author this year. So when does girls don't play sport actually hit the shelves? Is that about a week away or? Yeah, yeah. So it is a week away. So Tuesday, the 15th of August, it'll be on bookshelves, which is, it's kind of crazy. It's been a really interesting experience writing a book. Um, it was it was a lot harder than what I anticipated. And I think it, it took me a little while to feel comfortable in like finding my voice and, and kind of, it felt like I, I didn't know if I was the right person to speak on behalf of women in sport, you know, but I think the further I got into it, and using some of my stories throughout my career. And I, I also share some, some stories of other athletes, but I'm just surrounded by this information all day, every day with the female athlete project. And, and there's so many different discussion points around some of the issues that are impacting women in sport on a daily basis. So it was really cool to do some pretty in-depth research around it and, and pull together the book. Now, the name for the book, please don't tell me you were told this growing up or, or was it more about being made to feel like you didn't belong or was it both? Yeah, I think it was actually more, to be honest, it was something that I would say. So it, it stems from a story of when I'd go down to um, my local footy ground um, to watch my brothers play rugby. It was called Rat Park, the Mighty Warringah Rats, and on the northern beaches in Sydney. And I would go and sit on the hill and I just would count down the minutes to half time and I'd go and find a cone and a footy and I'd try and kick it over the posts. And I actually was pretty good at kicking it. And so I'd have these men come up to me and they'd say, you should play rugby. And I would turn to them as a 10-year-old kid and I'd say, girls don't play rugby. And it wasn't necessarily something that had been directly said to me, but I just didn't see women and girls existing in those spaces. And we had some awesome women playing rugby for our country, but I just had no idea who they were because I never saw them. They might've been out on the back paddock in the hand-me-down uniforms without a change room. So I think when writing the book, um, that was something that kind of, I guess, is kind of the basis for this idea of, of wanting to create change in that space so that when young girls go into a community club, there's so many barriers that they can face that might make them feel unwelcome. And, and there's some pretty concerning dropout rates for teenage girls in sport. And 
and some amazing research coming out of Victoria University around the importance of um, comfortable uniforms, having choices of uniforms. And we're starting to see teams wear navy shorts instead of white shorts because of concerns around periods. So, again, there's this real shift, but I think there's so many things that can be done to try and keep more more girls and more women playing sport. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Great to have your company. You're listening. This is your journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, we're going to go back and revisit the Chloe Dalton path to the here and now. So stay with us. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with the triple sports star, Chloe Dalton. So, Chloe, you're born in Singapore and you're born in between two brothers. Is it one older, one younger? Correct. Right. Memories of life in Singapore, if any? I don't have memories from when I was a kid. We moved We moved back when I was a toddler, two and a half, three years old. But um, we got to travel back a fair bit. When we, when we go traveling as a family, we'd often try and stop through in Singapore and the food is just something else. Um, I love Heine's chicken rice and the chicken satay on the streets is just to die for. So that's that's probably my favourite memories when I was a little bit more grown up. So why were you there and then why did you move back? Yeah, so dad works in insurance and, and had a job opportunity over there. So moved over um, as a family. But um, it was pretty cool because mum, when mum was about 12 years old, her family actually moved over to Singapore and lived there. So when the opportunity came up, mum had a mum had a pretty soft spot for Singapore. And it was um, it was really cool. And we've got some really great family friends from from times back then, which is special. So born in Singapore, obviously raised in the Sydney area. So you're growing up. Chloe, what was your first sporting love? Now, I know you were born with a big engine. So we talk on this show about physical gifts and yours was you could run all day. I think there was a national cross-country title somewhere in there. How, actually, how old were you when that came? Yeah, I was 11 years old when I won the national cross-country championships. Um, it was a really cool moment. It was in Canberra and I went out. I'm, they, it was like proper cross country. Like they made you like jump over like hurdles and little things and it was muddy and it was awesome. But when you came back, we're on this kind of this horse track and you had about 400 meters to go. And it was me and one other girl at the front of the pack. And, and my brother and my cousin got so excited that they actually started running along the inside of the track, like almost made themselves the paces for this last lap. They were just yelling at me like, come on, come on. And they almost got me disqualified, but they got me across the line and, and winning that race was was something really cool. But then the the following year I rocked up and as a twelve year old felt overwhelmed with the level of pressure and was so afraid that if I didn't win again then my family were just gonna be so disappointed in me. Um and so I didn't perform overly well and I think that was probably the end of the individual sports for me. I um I found a love for team sports after that one. Yeah and you found basketball. So how, how did basketball enter your life? Yeah, so I was doing nippers uh, down at my local beach, down at Warrywood Beach, and there's a well-known basketball family in Australia, the Dalton family, not related to me, but um, a little bit confusing. So Brad Dalton, who played for Australia, um, has a daughter also named Chloe Dalton. My dad's name is also Brad Dalton. So there were two sets of Brad Daltons with a daughter named Chloe Dalton at Warrywood nippers down at the beach. He saw me one day in the flags or the sprint or something, 
And he came up to me and he said, have you ever thought about playing basketball? And I was like, no, I never have. But a couple of weeks later, went down to the local basketball courts and and kind of fell in love with the game and, and played it all throughout my teenage years and, and was coached for many years by Brad and, and played with one of his daughters, Jade, um, throughout those teenage years, which was pretty cool. Must have a good eye for it, Brad. That's an odd question to ask someone doing nippers on the beach. Have you ever thought about playing basketball? I'm trying to find the <laughs> between nippers and being on the court playing basketball. I'm struggling there. I don't know if there is uh, many similarities, but he found something. Right. So you got yourself to WNBL level with the Sydney Uni Flames. Now, how do you look back on your stint at this level of basketball and, and trying to obviously, you know, validate your own performance, trying to cement a starting spot and seeing a future in it all? How do you look back on it? You did give it a good crack. Yeah, I I tried. And I think for me, like we talked before about kind of my love for sport and that cross-country thing. I was seven when I watched Kathy Freeman at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. And that was kind of a moment for me where I really wanted to win my very own Olympic gold medal. And so I thought once I, once I made the flames and I was playing in the WNBL, I was like, okay, I'm one step closer. I've got to get a starting spot here and then try and get selected for the Opals and go to the Olympics and do it that way. And then I got to the flames and I was there for about two years and I just couldn't get couldn't get minutes. I was ultimate Patty Mills, towel waving, high fiving kind of kind of hype woman, and it was it was really hard, right? Because you sometimes you just like you you still work really hard and you train as possible as hard as you possibly can and try and get your opportunities, but it just it didn't work out for me. And and it wasn't like I got ripped off. I shouldn't have been in the starting five. I just wasn't probably up, up to that level. And I think I had to be pretty realistic about the fact that if I'm sitting on the bench here, I'm not going to be making the Opals anytime soon. And so I went home and I typed into Google list of Olympic sports and had a look at a few different options. I thought about triathlon because of my running and I wasn't bad on a bike, but I hate swimming. So I crossed that off the list and I saw that rugby sevens was going to be in the Olympics for the first time in Rio in 2016. And it was just a crazy moment. Like I think I was 20 years old at the time to kind of reflect on that little girl that would sit, on the hill at, at my local rugby club to think that women were going to play rugby at the pinnacle of sport. So I gave myself three years to try and make that team day to get on the plane and head over to Rio. I love a big dream. So you decided, and Kathy Freeman's Sydney 2000 run would have inspired a whole generation or more, but you decided you wanted to be an Olympian before you actually chose the sport, which I love. Yeah, I didn't even know what the pathway was going to be. And, and to be honest, I think that's probably a little bit of, of a reflection on the opportunities that were available for girls and women in sport at the time. You know, there wasn't a lot of professional sports available. So I think, um, and I guess not a not a huge amount of Olympic sports are, but I, I didn't exactly know how I was going to do it. I just, I just knew that I wanted to wear my very own Olympic gold medal on a podium one day. And how is it? Oh, you touched on it, but the answer was in your upbringing the whole time. You were in, you were raised in a rugby household, and, and rugby sevens coincidentally was making its debut, was it not? In Rio twenty sixteen, so the planets have just aligned perfectly. Yeah, it was just, it was kind of bizarre, and I and I remember I was sitting at the dinner table, and I just remember like thinking, like saying it out loud, like I'm, I'm going to try this, like I'm going to try and make the Olympic team, and and Dad, the first thing Dad said to me, he's like, I reckon you'd be great at rugby. And so I just, yeah, I went down to, to the rats, to the local club. I learned how to tackle on the sand at the beach and got out in the backyard with my brothers and, and told them just to run at me over and over again and, and tried to learn the game in a 
pretty short space of time. But I think the coolest part is I knew the game through and through. I, I watched it for years and years, but it, it was it was a different thing to learn how to tackle and the ruck and the breakdown and things like that. But it was a nice sense of having a really good understanding of the the tactics and the strategy of the game. We're with Chloe Dalton on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Okay, Chloe's journey to the 2016 Olympic Games is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hello, You're we hope you're enjoying this week's this edition is of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is basketballer turned rugby sevens player turned AFL So your brothers had played, but but your mum and dad, Penny and Brad. Now you touched on Brad, but Penny. How did Penny feel about her girl playing such a game? Yeah, mum was pretty nervous in the early days. And the interesting thing was she actually had struggled to watch my older brother for many years. So my older brother, Mike, um, as a teenager, was pretty skinny. He was kind of one and he'd play out on the wing. And so every time he'd get whacked by someone, I think mum would kind of be a little bit nervous, whereas my younger brother had a bit more bulk on him. So I don't think she worried as much about him. But when I got out there, my very first ever game of sevens, I was playing for the Rats. And I was still obviously learning how to tackle, put my head on the wrong side and ended up with a pretty decent black eye. And I remember like... I said to dad, I've got to try and hide this from mom as we walked over to her. And I was kind of just like trying to turn my head a little bit to the side, which she could obviously see straight away. But within a couple of months, she um, she adapted and, and became the first person to give me feedback and encouragement. And, and she absolutely loved coming along for the ride. Yep. You needed a better disguise. You needed some sunnies or something. <laughs> no, I didn't do a very good job. So you touched on your brothers, so Michael and Bailey, in our last segment, how you had them, use the phrase, run at you in the backyard. So learning, well, tell us about these backyard sessions. I um I tried to find as much protective equipment as I could. I think I did shoulder pads, headgear, mouth guard. I thought about like just shoving a pillow down the front of me just for a bit more padding. But um, yeah, I got down on a knee because often in rugby you learn how to tackle on a knee just to kind of get your body positioning and your shoulder right. And just over and over again, I just wanted to, I thought if I could learn how to tackle these guys, there won't be too many women on the circuit that I won't be able to tackle. And and I've just got such clear memories of throwing this ball against the wall thousands and thousands of times to practice my passing and the neighbours just slamming their windows shut because they were so sick of hearing the noise. Just things like that, you know, like I think sometimes it's an interesting thing reflecting on my story and the fact that I've kind of gone between the three sports and I often tell the story pretty quickly about kind of jumping into one and then going to the Olympics it kind of it doesn't make it sound easy but I think there were so many components of it where there was so much that had to be done in a pretty short period of time to get me to that level and I think kind of looking back on those moments and being out in the backyard with my brothers like it just was such a such a team effort and and just so many repetitions of everything over and over and over again I love it. I love it. And clearly, like, educate me on sevens for a moment. It's a game based around speed and endurance. So you tick those boxes fine. Clearly just physical. What were you weighing at this point, may I ask? There's not a lot of you, is there? Yeah, I'm um, I'm definitely lighter now. So when I headed um, on the plane over to Rio, I was about 72 kilos. And, and I reckon, like, looking back, my face is a bit more round. And I reckon I was carrying a little bit of baby fat back then because I was – 
I was honestly, I was on multiple bulk protein shakes a day, just trying to put weight on. And yeah, as you said, it's definitely um, predominantly about speed and endurance, but there is still a big contact element. Um, So that was, and I played in the forward, so I needed to have a bit of size on me. Um, But yeah, not long after that, it kind of stripped off again. Before we get to Rio, though, I think you made your debut. Am I right in saying it was the Dubai Women's Sevens in 2014? So was this actually the game, maybe even your first one, where you, where you broke your arm, at least broke your arm for the first time? Yeah, it was in my debut tournament. Um, it was a couple of games in because we're in sevens. You play six games over a weekend. And so it was a couple of games into the tournament and, and we were playing against France. And there wasn't anything specific, but I remember – a few minutes into the game, just thinking that something doesn't feel right in my wrist. And it's so tricky in sevens because the halftime only lasts for two minutes. So you play a seven-minute half, two-minute halftime, and then you back out for seven minutes. So when I quickly chatted to the physio, I said, something doesn't feel right. So we quickly strapped it up and I went out and I tried to pass the ball and I was like, no, nah, doesn't feel good. And so went in a golf buggy in the, in the car to the Dubai hospital and had the scan done and it was a pretty decent fracture um, that would require me to fly home for surgery. And just sitting in that hospital, I had a couple of these doctors come up and, and tell me, you should not be playing a sport like that. You need to leave that sport to the men. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. It was it was a pretty confronting experience for a, for a 20-year-old to kind of be hearing that and not not having a voice to kind of respond or say anything back. Um, and I think obviously a, a reflection of the the cultural and re- cultural and religious practices over there, but it was still a pretty confronting thing to hear in your debut tournament for Australia when you've just fractured your arm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then if that wasn't enough, take us to early 2015 because I think then you refractured it again and you might have even again similarly played a, a couple of games without knowing. And I reckon was this, I mean, Olympic qualification would have been on the line for the team at around this stage too, wouldn't it? Yeah, so it was. It was. Um, it was midway through twenty fifteen, and I'd done all my rehab and come back, and we had back to back tournaments, London and Amsterdam, back to back weekends, and I reckon I might have done it in the warm up of the first game in London. Um, played through the tournament because we needed to try and qualify for Rio at that point, and ended up flying to Amsterdam and played six games on astroturf. Um, which is hard enough to get tackled onto, but doing it with a broken wrist is is a pretty horrible experience. And when I flew home and got the X-ray, my my ulna was just shattered. Um, so I think in that surgery, that was the one I got um, bone graft taken from my hip to fill some of the screw holes from the from the previous surgery. Did all my rehab again. Did a lot of single arm bench press in the gym, and then came back for Dubai the following year, end of 2015, um, and it was this horrible deja vu because I played against France again. I got hit in the late tackle, and as I was going towards the ground instinctively, I just put my arm out to catch myself, and the second I hit the ground, I knew that I'd fractured my arm for the third time in the space of 12 months. And that one was eight months out from the Olympics. So that was, I imagine, was that the big plate, the screws? Now, this is a nervous time. You're on the runway to the Olympics. Did you think for a time that that was it, kaput, or you've even then refused to concede? Well, when I went back and and met with my surgeon again, I was studying physiotherapy at the time, and he actually said to me, you need your hands for your career if you want to be a physio. Your bone health and your own ulna is not looking good at the moment. Are you sure you want to keep going with this? And mum and I went and sat out on the park bench and 
I think we were both pretty emotional. And I just remember looking at her and I said, I want to win an Olympic gold medal. We're doing this. And so I went in that time had artificial protein put into the screw holes to try and regenerate the bone faster and touch wood. <laughs> Three fractures was enough and it hasn't happened again since. Let's not, let's knock on every bit of wood around. <laughs> so you get there. I mean, tell us about the Rio experience. Like as a kid, obviously you were hooked on the games and now you're there and not only there, but representing Australia at Olympic level. And what was the whole experience? Does it come to mind, you know, seven years on or whatever it is now readily enough? Yeah, it's um actually funny you say that. I think it's seven years today since we won the gold medal, which is just insane. We know the final score. We know that Aussies are the gold medal winners, and deservedly so. Their co-captains are Shannon Perry and Shani Williams, with the Aussies taking the gold and retaining their number one world status. The anniversary. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, the Olympic Village was really something. It was... It was a really interesting challenge for us as a group because we talked a lot about the fact that we we weren't going to compete or win a medal. We were going there to win a gold medal. That's what we were going there to do. And so we had a couple of different strategies as a team about dealing with the adrenaline and, and the pressure of the village and, and what would come with that. But I just remember so clearly the thing that really surprised me was all the different body shapes. Like I think I kind of had pictured this ideal Olympic athlete but you just get this real diverse range of body shapes that are so specific to each sport and I just like I remember being in the dining hall and I remember seeing what I thought were a couple of volleyballers walk past I was like man they look like Venus and Serena that's so bizarre and then of course it's Venus and Serena because you're in the Olympic village like you kind of just have these moments where you walk past some of the most famous athletes in the world but in my head, you know, like I'm still just like, I don't know, I'm still just Chloe from the Northern Beaches who shouldn't be in this environment. Like it just was this weird, weird thing. I tried to find Usain Bolt at the Maccas in the village because I've always heard how he eats chicken nuggets before he races, but I think he was too much of a big deal. So he just waved from his balcony and sent someone on their way to go and get his nuggets for him. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? And then with all of that going on, you get the blinkers on your focus you beat New Zealand 24-17 in the final and win the inaugural gold medal for the sport. So this, this is hard to put into words, I know, but the momentous nature of that, and I'm sure you celebrated well being in Rio as well. Absolutely. Um, my favourite part of, of the whole thing was the podium was special, but after the siren sounded, I stood arm in arm with my teammates and we oh, I always get emotional when I tell this part of the story, no matter how many times I tell it. We ran towards the stadium and all my favourite people were up there. Mum and dad, my brothers, my cousins, my auntie and uncle and some of my closest friends had travelled. And and there's this photo that I have um, and it's my family members and, and extended family at um, the National Cross Country when I was 11 years old in Canberra. They're supporting me and it's the exact same people in Rio 12 years later. And it just was the coolest thing to be lifted up into the stadium with them and just give them all hugs and and just to kind of celebrate with them in that moment and say thank you to them for being on that journey with me and, and supporting my dream and kind of backing me in all the way, you know, like I'd, I'd taken some pretty massive steps in, in changing sports altogether. And I just loved the fact that I had them there to, to be able to celebrate. That it was really special. Because I'm sure in moments like that, it's not just the game and the result and, and in that moment, but it's the whole journey to get there. It's everything that comes to the surface seemingly at once, the sacrifices, the injuries, 
the bravery, the boldness to stick with the decision that you, you made and the dream that you finally fulfilled since you were a kid. I mean, these things are powerful when they all come together in, in moments like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as spectators, you always get to see those moments. You get to see the incredible moments of, of winning a medal or a premiership. And you also get to see the heartbreak of, of maybe the opposition. But I think there's so much that goes into it. And I think that's why family is such an important piece of that because they ride the emotions with you, you know, like the devastation I feel sometimes when I have to tell my family that I'm injured, uh, like not about their reaction for how I feel. Like I feel like, you know, I'm not letting them down, but I know how much they wear it too, you know, cause they're so along for the journey. So I think they go through all the really, really hard stuff. So that's why it's so special when you do get those glimpses because it is it is glimpses in sport, right? Like you're never guaranteed success. So it's really cool when they get to be there for the really good moments too. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. I tell you what, Chloe Dalton doesn't sit still for long because AFLW has come to life and the Olympic gold medalist wants a piece of another sport. That's up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's powered, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And we're joined today by Chloe Dalton, the triple sport playing change maker. So, Chloe, WNBL, Rugby Sevens at the Olympics, and now Women's AFL has finally come to life. This is 2017. When did you first lay eyes on AFLW? Can you remember the moment? Because you saw it on television, didn't you? Yeah, I was watching the first season on the telly and I just love the combination of skills that these women were showing. I think it was a really cool moment to kind of watch them and be like, this is awesome. And I think because I'd grown up in Sydney on the beaches, I didn't know a huge amount about footy. I didn't I didn't really watch Aussie rules growing up. As I said, I was part of a rugby family. So it wasn't a sport that was really on my radar. And I just remember the storytelling element. I just, it really hit me this idea of so many women had, had kind of pioneered this sport and pushed for it to be played at the top level for such a long period of time. And now there was this generation of women that had the chance to do it. I think for me... I thought it was a, a really powerful thing that I kind of wanted to be a part of. And I thought maybe if I put my rugby skills and basketball skills together, then I could make an okay footy player, um, which was a pretty ambitious task because I, I didn't actually know the rules of the game. I didn't really understand how the game worked, where you needed to be and when. And I jumped on a plane and, and Carlton flew me down and they said, all right, move on down, come find a job, come and play VFLW and if all goes well, um, you can hopefully get drafted as as an alternative sport rookie um, and play AFLW. And I probably ran around like a bit of a headless chook in, in my first few games of VFLW. And I just like, after starting to understand the game, I, it finally clicked about, about why these Victorians were so obsessed with this sport. Um, I just... I just love footy. I, I do think it's the most incredible combination of, of different skills, you know, like having to run and change direction and tackle and jump up in the air and take a mark. Like I just, I just think it's a beautiful game. And um, yeah, the, the more I learned about it, the more I enjoyed it. And I now 
feel a lot more comfortable out there, a lot less like a headless chook, which I think is good. Oh, no, it is good, and you certainly have. Don't play, don't be modesty. There's no room for modesty. But what I need to go back just a fraction. So when you see it on television for the first time, AFLW, the product, now you said before there's a tendency when you're talking about you play three sports and it can sound easy when we gloss over things and you tell your story. But just so I'm clear, this is how big your ability to dream is. You see it on TV and you decide almost there and then that, yeah, I'm going to give this a crack. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I um, yeah, I I think that I'm so I hate not being good at things. I really hate it, um, which I'm sure is like a lot of elite athletes, right? Like this real desire to be the best. Um, so I think it's this weird. There's this weird fear that comes with giving something up, like rugby sevens. I'd worked so hard, and we were at the top level of our game, the best in the world at the time. But moving to try something new was something that I actually found really refreshing. Um, There's a Steve Jobs quote that really resonated with me and it was the heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of becoming a beginner again. And to me, that's exactly what it felt like. I, I think it's really cool when you try something new because you can kind of just be in this place where you want to be teachable and you've got to be humble enough to put your hand up and be like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but you can find the very best person at what they do and and go and learn everything you possibly can from them. So I think there was an element of enjoying putting myself in a situation where I didn't know really what was going on, but I, I knew that I backed my stubbornness and, and my desire to want to be the best that I would eventually get there. So you do your apprenticeship down here, of course, and then Carlton take you in the 2018 draft, along with, I should say, your old sevens teammate in Brook Walker, who was crazy enough to travel down with you, I must say. And you go on to play every game in 2019. You've actually finished runner-up in the best and fairest in 2020. So it's it's a remarkably rapid rise, to be honest. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty cool that moment being named runner-up because I think – I kind of battled with in, in my first and second um, seasons in the comp of the, like I was always the cross coder, you know, like I kind of felt like I had to prove that I could play the game. And so I think that moment, like you obviously don't do it for the awards, but I think that um, that moment was kind of cool to be like, okay, I can actually play good footy and, and be a footy player. Like, yes, I'll always bring the skills and my background from other sports along with me, but I kind of wanted to be respected as a footy player as well. You did flirt with the idea, though, didn't you, of returning to sevens ahead of the Tokyo Olympics? I think you sat out AFLW in 2020. What happened? Was it another injury and perhaps one injury too many? Yeah, so um, I got to train for, for both and then, yeah, sat out the season, moved back to Sydney and started training full-time with the team. And obviously the Olympics had been delayed by a year with COVID. We're about ready to go. It was four weeks out from Tokyo. We travelled up to Townsville to play a tournament um, before we flew out. Um, it was against Fiji, New Zealand and, and the Australia A side. And in one of the games, my teammate uh, and I came from opposite directions and tackled the same person and the top of her head hit my face and fractured my cheekbone in about four places. And the second I lay back on the ground, I had this feeling of knowing that that something in my face wasn't right. And I just, yeah, I just was like, I reckon I'm not going to the Olympics. I could feel it straight away. And, and once the physio sat me up, I just had blood start gushing from my nose and I knew that I hadn't even hit my nose. So I knew that I was in a bit of trouble. Um, then I had to spend about five days locked down in a hospital in Townsville while the swelling went down um, and then had three plates put into my face 
which is still in there today, but I look, I think, relatively symmetrical. So that's um, that's a good sign. Um, yeah, but had to have, um, it was a little bit touch and go whether four weeks could be done, but the medical team just decided it was probably a little bit too risky um, four weeks out. So I, I felt for my coach that day when he had to, come into the hospital. He had to get special permission to come into the hospital because we'd come out of Sydney being a hotspot. Um, and I knew when he called to say he was coming, that that's was, that was the news he was coming to deliver, that it just wasn't enough time. So I wasn't going to be able to get on that plane. And I was just, it was just devastating. Like we dealt with the delay, the COVID delay and, and sat through all these lockdowns and it was kind of it was hard to, to push through on those training days. We were only allowed um, in the early days just to do one-on-one training sessions with a strength and conditioning coach. And then it went to three-on-three three before we could train with the team. You know, like you, you persevered through so much to kind of get back and then just like that, it's gone. And, you know, like like I said earlier, sport is – you don't get many glimpses of success and it can be a really, really cruel thing. You don't, you don't always get what you put in in sport and I think that's something you just learn – um, with setbacks like this, but yeah, it was tough to deal with. I don't, I don't talk about that one a lot. Um, I think there's an element of it happened and I probably didn't process it a huge amount and, and maybe in a few years time down the track I will, but gosh, it was, yeah, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. That would be a bit of pill to swallow as well as everything else going on in the world at the time. What a crazy time it was when you think back on it all. Um, more positive things. You're up there now with the Giants AFLW program. How's the preparations going for the for the new season? How's life up at the uh, up at the female equivalent of the Orange Tsunami, as we call it? Yeah, I love a good Orange Tsunami. Um, yeah, it's really good. I love the chance to play footy in Sydney. It's really cool. Um, and being part of the community in Western Sydney, I think the Giants do a pretty incredible job with the community around there as well. Um, we're ready to go. We've had a big pre-season. It's always so hard, right? And And people talk about the fact that you feel like legends in pre-season because you've been training hard and you feel like you're ready to go and you don't know um, we'll have a couple of pracky matches over the next couple of weekends which will give us an idea of where we're sitting but we get to play the swans in, in round one which is really really cool um, I watched the boys derby just the other night and I think it's it's awesome that we can start to create these rivalries in the women's competition and Sydney's obviously pretty pretty well dominated by rugby league so continuing to try and, I guess, challenge that market. And I think things like the the rivalry between us and the Swans is a really cool way to, to try and entice people to to keep watching watching the game, which is awesome. Well, Chloe Dalton, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, what a journey. As I said off the top, I mean this in the nicest possible way. It feels like you should be 50 rather than 30. <laughs> well done on everything you've done and are doing, and not just for yourself, but as we've touched on, for those still to come as well, which is so good. We appreciate you sharing it all with us today. Thanks so much for having a chat. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey. It's been for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online, of course, tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.